All right. Well, let's take some time in God's Word together. If you have a Bible or uh, an app on your phone and you want to get to Isaiah 41, we're going to be in uh, verse 21 through um, 17 of chapter 20 of uh, 42. So we are uh, in a section in Isaiah where God has just given his people in Judah the worst news of their lives. The news was that Babylon was going to come and capture them and take all their possessions and force them out of their land and make them slaves. This is a horrible uh, news to hear, right? This is the worst news that the people of Judah could have ever heard. And, and yet it's into this that God begins to speak words of comfort and says to them that even though these tragic things are going to happen, I am with you. You don't need to be afraid. You can trust me. And, and so he begins to work through all that. And we've seen that over the last couple of weeks in chapters 40 and the first half of 41. Um, now today, I think it's another thing that God is going to say to us that we really need to hear. Um, this is an amazing passage, and it's one that I think is so profoundly helpful to us in our day right now. Um, and, and that is this, that God is going to speak into our hearts and say to us that, that all the things that we try to set up for ourselves as our Savior or as our hope or as our joy— those things are going to disappoint us if they're not rooted in who Christ is. He's going to tell us that the things that we are counting on and hoping in will disappoint us if they're not rooted in Jesus. And here's the thing. It is extremely human because we're sinners to try and find our hope in those things that are not God. We, we are dealing with something that's very common and very natural to us. And so God is going to speak to our hearts today and let us know that we cannot find our hope in anyone but Jesus. We need to hear that. We need to hear that because... It's, it's in times of trouble. It's in times of uncertainty. It's in those, these days that we're living in right now when we will be so tempted, so tempted to try to, to find alternatives and solutions that are not in Christ. It is so human for us to do that. And so God is going to speak to us today and say, you know, you may be in a time of difficulty, but your hope is only rooted in me. Don't believe that you can find hope anywhere else. Now, the way he's going to do that is he's going to show us how our idols fall short. He's going to spend uh, the, the, the last half of 41 talking about idolatry talking about the worship of idols and how those idols fail us. Now, if you're like me, though, and you hear that word idol, 
you might be thinking little statues. You might be thinking, you know, trinkets uh, that people worship. You, you might be, like, like me, you might think about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? That not my favorite of the Indiana Jones films by any means. Uh, probably the worst next to Crystal Skull, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um, but nonetheless, in Indiana Jones, in the Temple of Doom, we see that idolatry thing happening in this primitive tribe, right? And that tends to be our thought when we think of idols. But, but idols are much deeper than that. They're not just images of, of stone or metal. They are really heart issues. And I, I came across this quote from Ray Ortland. Um, he, wrote a, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah, and, and in that commentary, he says this. He says, If idols were only images and figurines and fertility charms and so forth, Isaiah's message would be of antiquarian interest only. But the Bible is smarter than that. Even the Old Testament speaks of people taking idols into their hearts. That's in Ezekiel 14, 1 through 11. He goes on to say idols don't have to be actual images to work their spell on the human psyche. They can be internalized in our hearts if we understand that an idol is any heart-level substitute for God, then we can see that the modern world is infested with idols. In fact, John Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So, I love Ray Ortland's definition of an idol. The heart-level substitute for God. And, and he says that if that's the definition, then we can see it everywhere. And in fact, it's true. We do. We can see it everywhere in our culture. It's not in the same form as idolatry in ancient Israel from 25 or so hundred years ago. But idolatry still rages on, doesn't it? And, and here's, here's the thing. I think coronavirus has actually done some good in the sense that it's, I, it's um, showing us how pathetic our idols really are. And if you think about some of the common idols in our culture, and I'm not going to list them off in any order or particular order, I'm just going to name a few things that, that I can think of as, as idols in our culture. One of those idols is, is money, right? Money is a huge idol. People live for money. They, they, they make all their decisions based off money. And, and I think what we're seeing is that we had this booming economy. Now we have this very shaky economy. And, and you know what? I'm not an economist. I don't know how all this is going to shake out. That's not my job at all. But I know that there's a lot of people that are now seeing that their trust in money maybe isn't the surest foundation. And, and perhaps um, God may use that in some people's lives. And here's another idol. Um, we, we tend to idolize entertainment. Um, 
we we inter- we idolize entertainment, and entertainment can come in the form of sports. It can come in the form of of uh, concerts. It can come in the the form of all kinds of things. And now we're seeing because of coronavirus, uh, sports are canceled, uh, concerts and other gatherings are canceled. Um, we we don't have our our sources of entertainment quite like we used to. But but even at home, as you're sitting at home and under quarantine, and you're watching entertainment on your TV, your device. You know what? We've been in quarantine for like a week and I bet you are already bored to death of Netflix or whatever else you might be watching. Because those things cannot replace God in our lives. They just can't. And so even entertainment is being proven to be a faulty hope. Uh, what about family? Family, in, at least here in the Midwest, I think family is a massive idol. Well, now we are stuck in our homes with our families. And so if it hasn't yet gotten to this point, it will eventually get to this point where everybody is going to be clashing, butting heads. Why? Because even family is not a substitute for who Jesus is. And so while entertainment can be fine, money is a gift from God for proper use. Family is obviously a gift from God. These are not bad things, but we can't elevate those things above him because when we do, they will prove themselves to be very pathetic saviors. And, and that's just a few examples of idols. I mean, there's millions others that we could come up with, uh, but, but that's, that's really what we're going to be seeing is that the idols that we have, the, the heart replacing things that we have uh, are, are um, going to leave us unsatisfied. So today, God is going to speak into our hearts on this issue. He's going to tell us that any false savior that we trust in will disappoint us. He's going to tell us that only Jesus will help us and, and that our response to him should be heartfelt worship. So that's kind of the trajectory of the message this morning. We're going to see the outline of these past of this passage is the the powerlessness of idols and the power of God. So first God's going to dismantle the idol issue. Then he's going to show us who Jesus is for us and and that and then we're going to see how our heartfelt response ought to be worship. So that's the, that's the trajectory. So let's begin. We're going to look at verse 21 through 29. I'll read these verses, then we'll back up and we'll talk about what they're saying. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So these first uh, few verses what, here's what's happening. God is speaking, uh, interestingly, to the idols of the people, to their false 
gods, to the substitutes that they've tried to replace him with. And he's speaking directly to those substitutes and he's saying to them, okay, come on in you guys and let's, let's see what you have. Let's see what you have. He, he brings them essentially into court and he says, all right, here we go. Set forth your case. Prove that you are God's. He says, do the things that you can do. Come on, like, let's see it. Now, of course, God is just mocking these false gods, right? That, he's, he's clearly just bringing out the fact that, that these statues that his people are trying to replace him with are just dead, worthless pieces of material. They're not truly God's. He's trying to show them the futility and the foolishness of trusting in other hopes. He's making a mockery of it. It kind of goes back to um, what we see in uh, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And if you remember that story, he, he was the prophet of the Lord and there were hundreds of prophets of Baal. And the prophets of the god Baal and, and Elijah had this standoff, right? And basically it was like this challenge to see whose god could light an altar on fire first. And so Elijah let the gods of Baal or, or the, the prophets of Baal pray to their god and, and of course nothing happens, right? There's no fire that comes down. There's no, there's nothing, and they're doing everything they can. They're weeping, they're wailing, they're cutting themselves. I mean, it's a crazy scene. And, and Baal's doing nothing. And then Elijah starts to mock Baal. And he starts saying, oh, well, maybe he's on vacation. Or maybe he's, uh, maybe he's asleep. Or, or maybe, maybe, he's on, maybe he's on the toilet. Like, he says all these things to them, and it's really funny. Um, and then he prays to the Lord, and the Lord shows up in power and sets the altar on fire. And so this is very similar to that. God is making a mockery of idols. But he's doing that for our good because he's trying to show us that he's our only hope. And in fact, that's where the text goes. In verse 25 through 29, God is going to make the point that the idols are powerless, but he is the God who has power and, and is able to prove it. So let's read. It says, I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is none. Among these there is no counselor, who when I ask gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. So here God begins to display his power in contrast to the idol's. The idols don't have any ability to do anything at all because they're false gods. 
But what God says in these verses is that he is the God who moves history. These idols can't even, you know, set something on fire. He can move human history. And that's what he's talking about in verse 25 through 27. He's actually predicting the rise of Cyrus the Great of Persia. And he's, he's predicting this rise as a proof of his sovereign deity, of the fact that he alone is the sovereign God. And so he says here that the rise of Cyrus on the human scene um, proclaimed God's name in history because no one else saw it coming. He was the only one who predicted it. And in verse 28 and 29, he, he summarizes his point that there is no divine revelation outside of God's prophetic utterances that ultimately show us Jesus. I've said it many times that the Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament is God's preparation for Jesus. And then the New Testament is what points back to Jesus. And so God is predicting things that ultimately come true in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here's the truth. The idols of our imagination, the idols that we've tried to replace him with, they don't know what's going on. They're, they're, he actually says in verse 29 that they are a delusion. <laughs> they're, they're, just, they're, they're made up in our own minds. And that's all of them without exception. It's amazing when you think about um, how many deities or how many false gods there really are in our world. In fact, in ancient Mesopotamia, there have been discovered uh, 3,000 names of different deities that were worshipped. In the Roman pantheon of gods, there were eventually it got to the point where there were so many gods they couldn't even name them all. It was ridiculous. But here's the thing. Sheer numbers don't establish truth, right? Um, Cultural consensus does not establish truth. You know what establishes truth? Reality. Reality does. And there is only one real God. And, And the way we know this is because of Jesus Jesus, it says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, it was Jesus' resurrection that proves the reality of the God of the Bible. And and so what we're going to see here through the rest of our text is is Jesus. It's, It's not the full picture of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, but it's, it's God's um, predicting work in who the Messiah would be. And so I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take us through this, and we're going to spend some good time this morning just looking at Jesus and seeing why he is actually our only hope and why all of the substitute gods that we might try to cling to will leave us empty in comparison to him. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 42 through 4, 
God is going to show us his servant, uh, who is Jesus, right? So read Jesus in this, because that's who he's talking about. And then in verse 5 through 9, God is actually going to speak to Jesus, to his servant, and we're going to get some insight into what he would do for us. So let's look at verse 1 through 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So this is our introduction into Jesus, into the Messiah. He's saying here that this servant would bring justice to the earth. And we know that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, as he died on the cross, did so to take upon himself the sins of everyone who would trust in him. He took upon himself your sins and mine in order to bring about justice for God who has been offended by sin. He brought justice down upon himself in his sacrificial death for us. Now, from here, we get, we get to see that the, the, the direction of, of um, God's speaking changes. It, it goes from all of us looking at Jesus and him showing us who Jesus is to him speaking directly to Jesus, his servant. Look at verse 5. It says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit of those who walk in it. Now, he's just saying here, he's just reminding us that he is the sovereign God of history. He's the creator of the world. He's the one who rules and reigns in the world. God is not our false hopes, not our false gods. The true God is that. But then he says this in verse six, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now, what's important, and it doesn't come clear in English because English doesn't really have uh, plural you versus singular yous. Uh, we just have the word you. But in Hebrew, uh, there is a word for you as in you people, you group, and a word for you as in you individual person. And in this case, it's the singular use of the word you. So we know that God is not speaking to a group of people. He's not speaking to all of us. He's talking to someone particularly. And he's speaking to his servant, who we know is Jesus. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you, Jesus, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So in this section, what we are seeing is an amazing thing. We are seeing God address his servant, Jesus. And and he's describing to him and to us what he would do to bring about the restoration of our hearts. How God alone would show himself to be our Savior. There's a number of things I want to point out to you. There's a number of characteristics of Jesus that are listed in this, and I think it will do us well to talk through them. And I want to pair each of these things with a New Testament verse that, that says the same thing um, about Jesus. So the first thing we see in verse 6 is that the Lord has called Jesus in righteousness. In righteousness. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that God has appointed Jesus to be the only sinless person who ever lived. That he would live a perfect life. And the way, listen, the way that Jesus could do that was because he was fully God who became fully human. And that's a really mysterious thing. How can that be? We don't know fully, but we understand that that's what the scriptures teach. That God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so because Jesus was God and man, he could live perfectly in righteousness. You and I can't live in perfect righteousness. You and I are not capable of being sinless people. But Jesus was. Jesus is the only sinless one. And because of that, he's the only one who can stand between us and God. In fact, that's what 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, Here's the key. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered on the cross once and for all for sin. And he was the righteous one who stood in the place of unrighteous people like you and me to bring us back to God. What an amazing Savior we have. And and that is why our hope has to be anchored in him. Because your entertainment God is never going to die for you. Your money God is never going to be crucified for you. Your God of family or your God of relationships or your God of whatever, that they're not going to suffer for you. But the true God the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God whose glory is above all the earth. He did in humiliating himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to bring you to him. That's the first thing in this text we see of Jesus. 
Look at the next, it's at the end of verse 6. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Jesus is the new covenant between God and us. Now, a covenant is a biblical word for a relationship between two parties. And in the Bible, there's all kinds of covenants that are made. There was a covenant between God and Adam that Adam broke through his disobedience in eating the fruit. There was a covenant between God and Abraham where God promised that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the people forever. There was a covenant between God and Moses and there was a covenant between God and David. And we don't have time to talk through all the covenants and what they mean right now, but they all, they all in one way or another point us to Christ because Jesus is the culmination of all the covenants and he is the new covenant between God and us. And there's many places we could read to, to see that, but I'll just pull out Hebrews 12, verse 24. It says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He is the one who brings about this new dynamic relationship between God and his people. And, and his blood is the, the very cost of that covenant. That's why Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, when we, and we talk about this every time we partake of communion, right? when we take the cup, we are being reminded that the blood of Jesus is the new covenant that we have with God. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross is what makes us right with God, fully and finally right with God. What a great Savior we have. And again, our false idols are never going to do that for us. Let's look at number three, very end of verse six, the last phrase. It says, a light for the nations. Jesus came into the world to shine light into darkness. He, he came into the world to bring light to the nations, not just to the nation of Israel, not just to Judah, not just to uh, one particular group of people, but to all the nations. And this is what Jesus says of himself. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus shows the world of darkness the way to God. What an amazing Savior. Let's look at the fourth thing that's listed here. Verse 7 says, to open the eyes of the blind. To open the eyes of the blind. Jesus came into the world. This is very similar to being the light of the world, but it, it's, it's not just generically shining light, but it's personally opening people's eyes to see. Jesus came into the world to open the eyes of blinded sinners. He came into the world to show blinded sinners their way to the Father. 
in John chapter 9, the very next verse of chapter after Light of the World, is Jesus says this, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So what is he talking about there? Well, he's, he's talking about the Pharisees. And he's saying that those people who are blinded by their sin and, and are willing to come to Jesus, he'll, he'll open their eyes. But the people who want to just cross their arms and say, no, 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 I can see just fine, thank you very much. Jesus said, well, then, then their eyes are going to be closed. But Jesus came into the world to bring spiritual sight to spiritually blind people. The reason that you and I can see Jesus today is because he's opened our eyes and he's given us a new life. Fifth, in this section, look at verse 7 again. It says, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Jesus came to set prisoners free. Those of us who have been um, enslaved to sin, which is all of us, he came to set us free, to give us freedom in him. He tells us in Luke chapter 4, it's actually interesting because Luke 4, he's reading another passage from Isaiah, a different passage than the one we're reading, but they're very similar. They have similar ideas. And we'll get to this one later on in in the book, but uh, I think it's helpful to see what Jesus saw himself as doing. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives the recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So that's another quotation from a different part of Isaiah, but it's, it's basically the same thing as we're seeing here as well. That Jesus came into the world to set prisoners free. And that's why in Galatians, Paul is so uh, frustrated and even angry with the Galatians because what they did in that church, was they took the freedom of the gospel and they replaced it with the slavery of the law. And God, speaking through Paul, is saying to them, why would you exchange your freedom for slavery? Jesus came to set you free from the law and from sin. And so here we see this is the work of Jesus Christ for us. He does all of this through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his bodily resurrection from the dead. That's our Savior. That's the God that we can bank our lives on. That's the God that we should put all of our hope in. Not these false, pathetic gods. These delusional things that we create in ourselves. No, we need to cling deeply and and strongly to Jesus because he's our only hope. He's the only one who can open our eyes. He's the only one who can mediate a new covenant between us and God. He's the only one who can set us free. Everything else will blind us, separate us, and will imprison us. 
So, what's the response that we ought to have to Jesus in light of this? Look at the next verse. In verse 10, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. The response of the human heart is worship. In light of who Jesus is, who Jesus is for us, our response should be heartfelt devotion and worship to him. That should be our heart. And, and listen, I know that it's, it's different and unique in some ways that we're not together hearing this and we're not together in the same room singing together. Um, but, but you and I are called to sing to the Lord. We're called to lift up our voices in praise to God. We're called in the word here to be worshipers of this God who has done so much to save us. And so I want to encourage you, even as you gather with your family at home, to sing to the Lord together, um, to, to sing to him, to praise his name, to, to lift him high in, in your home this morning. And we're going to just take some time to respond that way. We have some songs that we'll sing together that uh, Crystal has put together for you and the words will be on the screen. You can sing along if you'd like. Um, we're going to respond to God in worship. And, and the way that we do that is by singing and uh, by lifting our voices to him in praise and also by uh, giving, right? And, and if you were here in this room with me, uh, I would be saying this to you there as well, that, that giving is an act of worship. That giving is um, a way for us to say, God, you have given to me all that I have and I trust you to get, and I'll give some of it back to you. And so I want to just encourage you, we're not gathered together today. There's not a box in your house that you can uh, drop your gifts in, uh, but, but you can give. You can give in a couple of ways. You can give by um, mailing your check to the church, or if you want to just drop an envelope in the mailbox out front, you can do that. Um, or uh, you can give online. And, I'll, and we'll have the link to give uh, below for you to see. And you can go there and give online if you would like to do that. Um, but we would just encourage you to respond to God this morning, however he's leading you, uh, through song, through giving, and, and just through the fellowship you have with your own family today. And so with all that said, uh, let me pray for us. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus and let's stay fixed on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is for us. 
We thank you that he has died for our sins to make us right with him and that no matter what we are doing, no matter where we are, you are with us and you are proving yourself to be our gracious and wonderful Savior. We pray that our hearts would be lifted to you today and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.